Hi there, Global Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from a chilly Colorado. I think I've mentioned before that I grew up here in Colorado, so I'm here for part of the holidays, actually flying out back to New York today. And it's been snow, (laughs) to say the least. So I'm looking at my guest today, who is here from my other home, Ghana. This is our part two conversation with Eric Osiakwan. And so just to give you a brief refresher on his bio, he's an investor and developer of new businesses with 25 years of experience, spanning 32 countries. And he's a leading pioneer of internet in Africa, having worked in multiple countries, building internet service providers and ICT businesses. Some of his successful exits include Burst in South Africa, One to Net in Uganda, Busy Internet in Ghana. He also founded and ran the Africa ISP Association for eight years, during which the ISP industry grew by almost 120%. And then he moved on to leading efforts to build submarine cables on the continent. So he subsequently contributed to the building of terrestrial fiber networks in Ghana and Nigeria. He is, as you know, one of the co-founders of Angel Fair Africa, which we'll kind of get a recap of what happened then. But he is also heads up Chanzo Capital. And so we'll get a little bit more information about that today. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back on. And uh, this time from Accra, not Cape Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still a beautiful background. I'm looking at a lush garden and I'm I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm a little bit bored in the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So fundamentally, I'm a, well, I'm an African. I tell people of Ghanaian origin. And or this beautiful continent of ours has given me an opportunity to manifest the many gifts that I've been given through my entrepreneurial engagements. So I primarily operate, you know, Accra, Nairobi, Joburg, and to some extent, San Francisco. So I also say I'm lucky to live on two of the best continents in the world, Africa and the United States. But most of my professional life has been on the continent as an entrepreneur and now as an investor. So that's how local and how global I am. Or that's how local I am. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, my listeners know a little bit about Accra. So tell us more about your local in Accra. Right. So, I mean, Accra is a beautiful city. Actually, a lot of people don't realize, but Accra is the center of the earth. If you take longitude and latitude, they intersect in the Gulf of Guinea, which is, I think, if I'm not wrong, 100 nautical miles from our independence act. So the founding presence of uh, President of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, declared independence on pole ground, and there's an independent arch that has a black star, and which is our independence square, where we do our independence celebrations. And that arc is the closest monument to the center of the earth. So I actually argue that it is the center of the earth. Because yeah, of the earth. yeah, I love it. So literally, Accra is the center of the earth, and Ghana is a gateway to Africa. It has some major significance. And so I am proud that this is where I call home, and this is where I come from. And I've traveled the world. I always tell people my best favorite city is Accra. Of course, I'm biased, but it is a beautiful city. Nine months of the year, it's summer. It's hot. It's humid, you know, and you're just out there all the time. And then there's three months of the year, which is June, July, August, where it starts raining, where that raining season. So primarily, those are the two seasons. I grew up here, did most of my primary, secondary education before I went to U.S. for uni education. And Accra has become a burgeoning center for bringing the diaspora back home. So as you know, proud to the year of returning 2019, there's been three efforts by different sort of administrations to connect Accra or Africa to the diaspora. The first was Panafrest. Probably before mm-hmm. Panafrest, there was mm-hmm. something before, but I remember Panafrest, which was headed by the Honorable Kojo Yanker, who was a minister uh, in the central region. And his vision was to put the tourism potential of the central region on the global map. And he created this Panafrest event as a way to bring the diaspora to the continent by way of tourism. And then second administration during President Kufour's time, there was a thing called the Joseph Project, I may be wrong, headed by one Jacob Echebilamte, who was a minister at the time, was leading minister. 
and then most recently, the year of return. So I think the culmination of those efforts over the last 20 years has brought sort of the diaspora closer to home and has given people of African descent sort of the signal that this is the time to reconnect with your roots because this is where you originally were and by means of slavery, you were forcefully sort of moved out. And so for me, I think that it's coming full circle. And as you know, there's a big full circle festival that mm-hmm. will return. And this year they're doing the full circle um, Africa Economic uh, Conference. And I was there right. today. That's, day, and okay. it's good okay. to see that it's not just about cultural renaissance, but now it's also about economics. You know, how do we pull mm-hmm. our resources together so that we can become economically powerful in the 21st century? And I see that as really the rise of Africa. I think that Africa is a continent that has so much resources, human, you know, mineral resources, you can name them. And so how can that continent be the most poor continent? You know, it just doesn't add up. And so I think that the full circle of, you know, the African diaspora connecting back to Africa is going to be a powerful force that unleashes the potential of Africa on the global stage. And for me, the deriv- the subderivative of that is the technology industry, which is what I know, right? And so when people talk about the Africa rising narrative, I basically argue that it's a tech rising narrative. Because over the last 20 years, if we take the look at the historical anecdote, the industry that has emerged predominantly through the private sector is the telecom mobile network sector. And this sector has led by bringing technology into the hands of the homes of many Africans. Today, there are more cell phones in Africa than the United States. Actually, there are people with more, there are more cell phones on the continent than people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just two decades ago, there were less landlines in most African cities. So within two decades, technology, mobile technology has come to the forefront as a means by which people communicate and how people connect to the global world. And so Africa had become the global center of mobile innovation because the generation, the next generation of entrepreneurs begin to innovate on that mobile platform that has been built. Mm-hmm. And this is how these entrepreneurs are using mobile technology to solve very critical problems. And as I said, uh, necessity demand of invention, right? So because there's so much necessity on the continent, you see so much invention. And some of these inventions will become global companies that will lead the 21st uh, century as we know it. So, so I primarily argue that the African rising narrative is a tech rising narrative. And actually, if you look at the historical anecdote, there's quite some strong evidence. Freshfields, who are a very big U.S. consulting law firm, did a research in 2014, and they looked at the performance of telecom, media, and technology companies on 14 stock markets across Africa. They concluded that the analyzed returns of these technology companies across Africa was cumulatively three times that of oil and gas almost three times, twice more than the African stock index. You know, so it means that the technology sector, when you take just mobile as an industry, if you invested in mobile, so what that means is that if you just invested in any telecom, media, and technology company over a decade, you made three times more than you invested in oil and gas, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously, Mm -hmm. it means that that sector has made huge returns, but also made huge impact. Because now people have mobile, and mobile technology is taking people out of poverty. Now there's empirical evidence that people that have access to mobile technology are able to improve their incomes. They're able to improve their productivity. They're able to lift themselves out of poverty by using mobile technology as a tool to enhance productivity, to grow their incomes, right? So mobile is not just a luxury tool, or it's not just sort of a a, a device for talking. In Africa, the mobile phone is the computer, most people see the internet through the mobile phone. And I was lucky to be one of the entrepreneurs that built the connectivity layer. So I wasn't involved in building mobile networks, but we built ISPs who are the internet service providers. And so the ISPs were the ones that brought mobile connectivity to the cell phones, right? We basically ushered Africa into the the uh, global internet, or what we used to call the information superhighway. I remember that was yeah, mm-hmm. the name of the internet back then. We used to call it the information superhighway. And actually, my history dates to a program that was run out of the 
UNECA, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, called the African Information Society Initiative. Basically, in 1994, the UNECA came up with this program where they envisaged an information society in Africa. And the first barrier to that was access to connectivity, right? Access to the internet. And so they set out to create programs that enabled African countries to connect to the internet. And so there was another program called the Internet Initiative for Africa run by the UNDP. And these programs brought entrepreneurs like myself into the limelight, but allowing us to go into African countries and make an assessment of the need to bring connectivity and giving us the tools and the access to bring connectivity to these communities. And so we went to places where there was no internet. And literally, we would work with local entrepreneurs, create a local ISP business, and basically bring internet connectivity to these countries. So this was a really beckoning moment on a continent where people started seeing the mobile web. And at that same time that we were doing that, the mobile networks were being built. And so at some point, these two converged. And that was what created what I call a mobile web continent, right? So for most Africans, they see the web through their mobile phone. And that's quite powerful and very distinct for how people saw the internet in the West. And that defines how technology is consumed and how it's produced in Africa. Right. So (laughs) I'm going to be a little controversial here in saying that, you know, I, I agree that there's been a lot of innovation in, in Africa, in the tech space, but, but some would argue that we're not moving as, as quickly or swiftly as we could because we're not inventing any of the technology. And so where do you see that as a hindrance and where do you see us being able to, you know, we don't have factories, we don't, we don't have the things that enable us. So for example, our satellite technology, the things that now enable technology. So the ISPs were great, but we haven't invented any of those things. So so where do you see us and and what are your takes on the actual invention of the tools that will allow us to move into a more competitive space and actually keep us and sustain us in growth and economic growth? Right. So you know, that's a very important observation. Now, primarily because Africa did not industrialize, we we don't have the industrial base to create the manufacturing of these technologies. So, so we miss that. So Africa has most, I mean, if you take iPhones, phones, the biggest uh, resource that you need for that is um, lithium. And we have it in abundance in Africa. But we did not create an industrial base to essentially move lithium into battery production, into cell phone production. So the fact that we missed the industrial revolution, some people have argued that it's the reason we couldn't get into the information age. But some of us argue that you could leapfrog. So if you heard the term leapfrog, this is where it came from, right? People said, how could Africa leapfrog industrialization and get an information age? Now, remember when we did a summit on information society, this was one of the big arguments that we made. We said, you do not necessarily need industrialized to get into information. And I'll explain. So even though we don't, we didn't innovate in creating the cell phones and creating the devices, which is the hardware, we are not innovating on the software that runs on the devices, right? Which means that essentially, even though we are handicapped, we're able to come in at a certain point and be able to leverage what is already there to create production. Right. And and the reality is that you can't go back and try to industrialize. I, I still think that there needs to be some level of industrialization in Africa, right? Because it just doesn't make sense that a continent that has most of the natural resources does not add value. For example, I mean, we produce cocoa in Ghana. How come we don't have chocolate factories in Ghana? It doesn't make sense, right? So given, I will grant you that we needed to industrialize. But we argued that you did not, because we did not, we did not industrialize, is not a panacea to entering the information age. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we got a point that the lack of industrialization created a huge, because if all these cell phones were manufactured in Africa, can you imagine how much more, you know, productivity would have happened, how much more entrepreneurs, how much more value, how much more wealth would have been created? Right. But now we skip that, and now we're innovating on the software side, which gives us an inroad into it. The second thing with industrialization is that you need a certain level of capital base and knowledge to create industries, which, sure. which mm-hmm. we did not have. Right? Why we did not have, I don't know. But 
the reality is that if you take China, China invested heavily in creating that knowledge base and that industrial base to become the factory of the world, right? So we missed that to a very large extent. And so our focus now is how do you leverage the infrastructure that is there now to create the next level of wealth, which is mostly around software infrastructure. For example, one of the biggest innovations is mobile money. Now, up until now, most Africans could not transact online. So they had a cell phone, they didn't have credit and debit cards, and so they couldn't postpay because you could not find people. And so what did the mobile operators do? They came up with the idea of prepaid, which is that you walk to a vendor or you walk to a mobile operator's office, you give them cash, and then they give you a voucher or a number, or they give you that amount in value that you put on your phone. And when you put that value on your phone, you can now use the phone to talk. So a fundamental difference is that in Africa, the cell phone usage is prepaid. It's not postpaid, right? Right. So that creates, fundamentally creates a debit economy, not a credit economy, right? Mm -hmm. And so that shifts the position of how people consume technology. And because people put the value of the money on the phone before they're able to talk, it was possible to convert that value to electronic currency, which is what mm-hmm. is mobile money. So if you put $20 in your phone as airtime to talk, you can convert $10 into electronic money, which is mobile money. And now you can buy with $10 online. So that technology did not require internet. So it became very pervasive across Africa. started in Kenya by a company called Safaricom. Mm-hmm. And today, mobile money is the fundamental way that people transact electronically in Africa. And so you can see there that that innovation is unique to Africa. It's unique to the circumstance. As a matter of fact, there's anecdotal evidence now that mobile money is the most innovation that's come out of Africa. And now it's gone to the global West. You know, I mean, Stripe is built on that technology. It's a lot of Western technology companies that are adopting mobile money as a way to deliver online transaction to do payments or the core of what you call fintech. So that's an innovation that came out of here. And on top of that, we are seeing more secondary innovations across the continent. Okay. I mean, I'm an, I feel like the masses are, are there and they, they are adopting, but I think we're not getting the highest efficiency or effectiveness in using those technologies because we don't have a, an industrial base that really supports it. Correct. And those things that that then really, for example, infrastructure and and just you know all of those those bits that are kind of holding us back. Look, yeah. Bryce, you're absolutely right. And I, like you said, it's a question of you got to start from somewhere. Sure, absolutely. So we technologists mm-hmm. make the argument that the fact that we do not industrialize doesn't mean that we cannot participate, right? So you're right. Sure. If we had industrialized, would have been at a different power level, right? So we got to start from somewhere. So yes, there is a deficit if you go to rural areas. Some people, you know, actually, you know, it was interesting. Back then, there was a big debate. Bill Gates argued back then that we needed to get Africans clean water and, le- and electricity and not the internet. He said, mm-hmm. you guys need to wait, get clean water and all that stuff before you can get on the internet. We argued that they are not mutually exclusive. Right. Our argument exactly. was that you needed to give people clean water, you need to give health care, but also you need to give them technology because... We saw technology as a way of increasing production. We saw people's participation in the digital economy as a way of moving to the production side of the equation. Because we, we argue that we cannot be on the, con- if we're always on the consumption side of the equation, we are not going to mm-hmm. progress, right? So mm-hmm. that argument today, you know, the vetted is out. I mean, a lot more innovation coming from a continent that is industrialized, right? right. That is leverage technology. I mean, my mother, when I first gave a bought a cell phone for my grandmother, she didn't require a manual. She just adopted it. So mm-hmm. rate of technology adoption is one of the most interesting phenomenon that's happened. It's, it's a huge paradigm shift. So there are two yes. little paradigm shifts that I've seen in my lifetime. The first is how what they call illiterate people, and I put illiterate invested commerce because when people cannot read and write, we say they're illiterate, but they're smart. Just they can't read and write right. English, which is a foreign language. Sure, exactly. So people exactly. are smart in their local language or in their native language. But we mm-hmm. argue that those people could not adopt technology, and we were totally wrong. I mean, people yeah. that could not read and write English see the phone and they don't know what to do with it. 
right? right people right, could not right. read and write, go on Facebook, and they know what to do. Yeah. So the, tech, the first level was that massive technology adoption that was totally mind-blowing. Nobody predicted it. Most people mm-hmm. actually argue that most Africans do not use a cell phone because they couldn't read or write English, and they were all wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The second m- massive paradigm shift, so, so that created a user base, right? That's, that's still on the consumption side of the equation. The second paradigm shift, which is, in my view, the most powerful, is how the young generation started thinking and realizing that they could create the next Facebook and Google sure. Africa using yeah. that platform, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I meet African, young Africans you can see this guy probably cannot even afford two square meals a day, but he's able to program and write software using their cell phone and they're able to write codes that people in Silicon Valley who have to go, who've been to Stanford and been to MIT cannot even write that code, right? Or he's writing code at that level. And he's saying, I can build this technology that can change the world. It's a very powerful paradigm shift, right? And that's what actually propels me to do what I'm doing now. There is sort of something that is happening on the continent. You know, when I was young, our generation, the main thing was, you know, you know, get go to the U.S. and get education and don't come back. You know, I come right. back and, yeah. I, you know, I can tell the story of what my auntie said when he saw me when I came back, right? But, <laughs> but today, there is a generation of young Africans who are not interested in going to the U.S. Some of them are college dropouts. But they have adopted mm-hmm. mobile technology and they believe they can build technology companies that can change the world, that can become the next Facebook. I mean, that is bold. I mean, that is the confidence that you need to make change. To find somebody who is not even got college education and he has this belief and this vision, that is what changes people. And that's the people that Steve, uh, Steve Jobs called the crazies. You know, those who crazy enough and you think they are crazy but they are the ones that really change the world it's true it's true it's true so you you brought up your your journey abroad and back and so i want to kind of put some context on my why the where question right and so it's why how did you come to be working living and playing where you currently are and particularly how chanzo capital how did that how did that come to be your 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 place right now right so so a bit of my story is very unusual in the sense that when I first went to the U.S., I'd already started building companies in Africa. I started, you know, I told you I was part of the African Information Society Initiative. I was a consultant in this project. I started traveling around Africa. And it was clear to me that technology was going to become a major um, part of African society. And so I deliberately wanted to get knowledge in the worst and come back. Or I, and or the way I put it is, get the knowledge that I implemented here, right? So I've actually lived in the U.S. and Africa for the last 30 years. I've always gone back and forth. People ask me, how do you live between San Francisco and Accra? But I've done it the last 30 years. And it's been a deliberate effort because for me, I felt that it was important for me to be in Silicon Valley to know where the cutting-edge technology is, but to bring it into Africa and implement it, right? And so in the early days, I started building ISPs, Internet Service Providers, which is the gateway to the internet, right? And we created a very competitive downstream ISP industry across multiple markets. We, we worked in about 32 countries, probably was involved actively in building about 14 of these ISPs. And then we created ISP associations. We started creating them into industry bodies. And then we created Internet Exchange Point, which was the core of the internet. The internet is a network of networks. So we started getting these ISPs to inter-Canadian inter- networks within the country and between within the country and between the countries. And to the African ISP Association. So we created a national ISP association like GISPER, the Ghana ISP Association, and we created a Pan-African body that represented all these ISPs. And that created a very strong industrial movement across the continent from the private sector to create massive infrastructure where we could communicate using the internet on the continent. Because really the internet is just a network of networks, right? So you have your network, I have mine, we connect them. And, and then, and then it, that's really what the internet is. So for us, it was clear in those days that we needed to meet, build this fabric of infrastructure that was core to how the internet operated. So we were part of global bodies like ICON, the Internet Engineering Task Force, the um, ASO, Internet Address Organization. So we, we understood we were part of the global community of people that were building the internet. 
And and we played an active role. And I use we all the time because it wasn't just me. There were so many people involved. And I don't want to take too much credit. But it was a pretty strong community of technical people, business people, policy people, government people, academic people that were really actively working bring Africa into the global internet. So by 2007, it was clear that we had created a very competitive downstream ISP industry. But then the upstream, which is how you connect to the global networks, we were, Africa had only one subsea cable, which means that the rest of the continent was mostly going through satellites, which was slow and expensive. And so I got an opportunity to go to Stanford through the Routers Foundation program which was a program called the Digital Visionaries Program, where they bring digital visionaries to the valley. And at that time, I'd been thinking about the fact that how do we have, it was like a pyramid. So we have a very competitive downstream industry, but everybody goes through one pipe and goes out. And that pipe at that time was called Satri, which is the South African telecom cable or some name like that. The whole continent, the largest continent on the earth had one subsea cable, was, you know, the U.S. and Europe and Asia had multiple subsea cables. So I decided I wanted to solve that problem, right? So I went into Stanford to this program with a vision to see how we could create more subsea cables using an alternative model, which I was part of writing called the open access model. So open access was a set of principles in academic publishing. And so I took those principles and applied to the telecom world. And then we came up with a model around how you build infrastructure, specifically fiber infrastructure. And this got attention of the World Bank. So I became a consultant to the World Bank and a few multinational institutions. So we created this framework that became adopted in the telecom industry. And luckily for me, when I was at Stanford, I was doing this consulting for the World Bank as well. And immediately when I finished, I got a call from the Kenyan government. The permanent secretary at the Ministry of Communication had read our open access model. And the Kenyan government was looking to build a subsea cable. Actually, the evidence was that at that time, Kenya and East Africa, the eastern seaboard, i.e. I. the Indian Ocean, was the only mm. part of the world that had zero subsea cable. So mm. the three subsea cable I was talking about came from Portugal all the way down to Senegal, wraps around the west, goes all the way down to Ghana, Nigeria, Ivory Coast, Angola, I think Cameroon, Angola, South Africa goes to Mauritius and goes to India, to Asia. So the eastern, the Indian Ocean, the eastern seaboard, Madagascar, uh, Malawi, Tanzania, Kenya, Djibouti, Ethiopia, were all without us. They were the only part that has zero subsea cable. So the Kenyan government had tried to sort of do a collaborative project, but it wasn't working. And then it, they read this paper that we had written, and, and they thought, okay, this could be a different way to do it. And so I got invited by the Kenyan government and in 07, 08, if you remember, Kenya had election violence. Yeah. When the country was burning down, we were busy connecting it to the rest of the world. And that's wow. how we built what is now the, the East African Marine System Teams, T-E-A-M-S. Mm-hmm. It was the first open access subsea cable, then it was by Seacom. And today we have 18 subsea cables. Uh, two just got launched, so we are probably about around 20. But the open access model that we developed became the basis for building all this critical infrastructure of subsea cables and terrestrial fiber. And these high-speed fiber cables then brought high-speed broadband to the cell phones, right? Mm-hmm. So this is how today you can, you know, do a Zoom call, you can do all this thing on your cell phone because they are connected into this high-speed subsea cable that connects the global internet. But, but, but this, I want to close it with two very important anecdotes. We first built the critical infrastructure terrestrially on a continent, which is the ISPs. And that was crucial because you know to build a critical mass of connectivity infrastructure and tools to connect to the global internet, right? So by the time we're connecting to the global internet, there was a pent-up demand that was evident in the mobile growth, right? Right. And so it was even easier for global investors or financiers to see the demand and therefore finance these cables that were built. Right. So creating that demand equation and solving that side of the equation is always critical. You need to be able to show that there's people that will consume the technology because without that, it's difficult to raise the capital that you need to build this critical infrastructure projects. And so that was the first part of my life. You know, so I was involved in doing that. And so within those years, I was an entrepreneur. So come 2010, I found myself 
in two experiments, right? The first was that I was involved in building all these major subsea cables, terrestrial fiber. But also during the day, that's what I was doing. But at night, I was sort of advising this new generation of entrepreneurs who had started sort of piggybacking on what we had built to kind of exercise themselves in software architecture, right? I mean, hey, I can build the payment rails. I can build something to connect farmers. I can build something to solve the water problem, right? And so I started realizing this was quite interesting. And I, then I realized this is how Silicon Valley happened. This had happened in there. So then it became clear to me that this, this was going to happen in Africa. And what, it, what made Silicon Valley, the guys who made it always reinvested. And so the guys who were heard became a shoulder for the next guy. So this is how by 20, between 2010 and 2013, I was kind of doing this experimentally, right? And I realized that it was becoming, it was getting momentum. I was all seeing it in Ghana. I was seeing it in Kenya. I would go to Nigeria. I would see the same time. I would go to South Africa. I would go to Ivory Coast. So around that time, I'd written a book called The Kings, uh, which is the five countries that are going to the digital economies, Kenya, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, Ghana, and South Africa. So I said, okay, I'm going to concentrate on these five countries, right? In 2013 was when we launched Angel Africa List. I told you the story mm-hmm. of how I went to a conference that World Bank had invited me to this innovation summit in East London. And in that conference, I was sort of touted as the African angel investor together with Andy Lee, who was running the private equity fund at that time. And so private equity is much later on in the cycle of investments, right? And so we were sort of sitting with 35 entrepreneurs and we said, why don't we start up a network of angel investors, right? That could fund these entrepreneurs. So that's how my transition happened. So I started, we started Angel Africa Lates, we launched Angel Fair Africa, which became the way by which we got deals. So every year we'll bring 10, 20 entrepreneurs working with all the innovation ecosystems. So incubators, accelerators, you know, all these guys, we will sit with them and essentially screen the best from their portfolio and then bring investors who want to invest in them. Right. And then the first event we did is something convention center together. Uh, we partnered with the Joburg Art Fair. The first event had three deals. And then it was clear to me we had struck a chord where we could create deals from these events. And as I say, the rest is history. So I'm curious about the sub subterrestrial sub, um, technology and the fiber lines, just in terms of what kind of capital is necessary and what kind of time frames did it take to or does it take to to build and, and move into that space? Good question. So so normally you need a combination of private and public capital. So I'll give you the use the Teams cable as a best example. It was one of, in my view, the best public-private partnership that we did, where the government underwrote most of the cost for the cable. But we the mm-hmm. private guys had to put in private capital. And the reason we could do it because the government was ready to underwrite, take the underwrite the risk. And so that was a good public-private partnership that enabled the team's cable to happen. If we had done it by private sector alone, we would have needed a public underwriting. And without a private investment, the public underwriting didn't make sense. Right. And so you needed a combination of soft and hard capital. But what is so important is to, to be able to be clear on the mix of equity and debts that goes into mm-hmm. projects. Now, most of these infrastructure projects, the truth is that the infrastructure projects do not make money by themselves. It's the services that run on top of the infrastructure. And so the government bringing we, the private sector, and the ISPs to equation meant that we will now take the fiber and then sell it into the market. So we become the service layer, right? And that's how you make money in these projects. And so it's important to do the sun cost, but you have to be able to figure out what is the commercial model for unlocking the value and making money out of this project. And so this, our team became a successful project because we talked through these elements, both from the, the cable, the, the subsea cable, and from the terrestrial fi- fiber. Because the other part of the equation is that it's not just building the subsea fiber, but mm-hmm. you'll be able to drive the infrastructure inland, right? So the fiber lands on the beach, but not everybody lives on the beach, right? So you got to drive it in. Right. So we had talked through the whole loop of how do you then create a terrestrial infrastructure that drive the fiber to the cell phone towers? Because the towers are there and the cell phones are connecting to the towers. You have to drive the fiber infrastructure to the tower. And so this created a pretty strong ecosystem of actors in the private sector. So there were guys who were doing the terrestrial, you know, the, the, the subsea fiber, and then the mobile networks were supplying the services to the users. And so you mm-hmm. need that ecosystem play as well. So it's not just the financing, 
but the mechanisms by which the ecosystem work needs to be clearly laid out. And and the good thing was that we were able to do this in Kenya because Kenya had no infrastructure. So this is where mm-hmm. having a clean slate is important because mm-hmm. other countries like the developed world, there's a very huge legacy infrastructure. So if you had a, an old telephone network system, you have to build around the legacy. So one of the arguments that we made then about leapfrogging was that because Africa had a clean slate, it was possible for us to leapfrog into the next generation technology. This was the second argument around the leapfrogging that we made, was that it wasn't just about connecting to the global internet or connect technology, but because we had a clean slate, and, I, and we had a lot of pushback. You know, our friends in the West, I mean, I remember we started meetings at the World Bank at this multinational, and these guys will tell us, no, 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 you guys, you have a clean slate means you don't know anything. And mm. so it was not possible for you to tell me First of all, you remember, I, I told you they made an argument about we not being industrialized, right? And so, sure. industrial. yeah. And they made an argument that because you don't have a telephone infrastructure, you actually don't know how the switches work. So, how can you know mm-hmm. how the brothers work? And we mm-hmm. said, no, no, actually, that is an advantage. So, sometimes, in, in the words of Malcolm Gladwell, your disadvantage could be your advantage, and your advantage could exactly. be your disadvantage. So right. we were able to leverage our disadvantage that we didn't have a legacy infrastructure to be able to build next generation infrastructure, right? And leapfrog mm-hmm. into today there's 5G in Africa. I mean, we go to the West, a lot of people don't have 5G there, right? Friends come to Africa, and say, the cell phones are way faster here than there. How is that possible, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we have <laughs> legacy, right? Yeah. So, so that's sort of the importance and important premise that we built in order to make this work and to create that nexus of building something out of nothing. And this is really the ethos of what happened. That we really managed to build nothing, something out of nothing, you know. And today there's the next generation that is carrying that forward. Sure. So in talking about this, I want to ask you now a little bit about your local speak. And so through your work, through your travels, and in the, I want to say the fintech and the tech space, are there any global sayings or, or when you think about global speak, which is a word, a phrase or a saying that is a meaningful part of your a local experience, what comes to mind? Well, probably I'll say the two things that comes to mind is that you need to be local in the, con- in the sense of context, but you need to be global in your approach, right? And that's what I've always been. I understand my African culture, my African roots, my African identity, and who I am as an African. But I see myself also in the global world. Actually, when this happened, technology, the internet was one of the forces of globalization, right? Yes, um, indeed. Today, there's a pushback on globalization. There's more nationalism, and we can go into what I can speak. But mm-hmm. I think that what was helpful for me was that I was very rooted in my culture and my identity as an African and as, mm-hmm. as a Ghanaian. And so when I went into the global marketplace, I went with my chest out. I didn't feel inferior. I didn't think that somebody was smarter than me. I just thought that, as they say, talent is universal, but opportunity was not. And, I, you know, and so I always look for the opportunity to express myself. Sure. And so, and I say this to a, a lot of the founders that, that yes, and, and some of them, as I told you, some of these entrepreneurs tell me this. I mean, you see a guy who, Belly has a college education. So I can build the next Facebook. He said, yeah. And he would say, but Mark Zuckerberg didn't finish school. And Bill Gates was a drop exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, and you only get that confidence when you're rooted in your culture, you're rooted in your identity. You understand where you come from and you understand that you're unique and you have a participatory force in the global human race. Mm-hmm. And and so that, that has really been how I've approached my practice. Of course. Now, when you go into countries, when you travel, every country is different, right? So the third thing is that you must be open-minded to new cultures, new ways of mm-hmm. You must be ready to learn. I, I tell myself I'm a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. The joy of traveling and being curious and traveling in Africa. I mean, I've done 46 countries in Africa. Africa is the most beautiful continent. But you must go out there with an open mind. When I go to Nairobi, I don't crave an experience of Accra. I mean, we went to Bujumbura I'm in Burundi many years ago to set up an IXP. And when we landed, it was a totally different culture. But I never expected what I was in Accra. Once you open your mind and you realize that exactly. you're here to explore and you want to understand how people live, why do they eat, you know, 
sitting on the floor. I mean, in Senegal, the way, I mean, as an African culture, once you are ready for that, you realize that it's beautiful where people live, how people think differently. And it all works, by the way, <laughs> you know. Yeah. People have yeah, different otherwise, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. and I apply that same thinking to technology. So in our investment thesis, we say technology doesn't make change. You use technology to enhance what people do already. So mm-hmm. in imagine digital economy thesis that we have a chance of capital. Our, our fundamental experiment that we're trying to prove as a firm, or what you call a thesis, is that the digital economy is going to be a mapping of the secular economy. But it is the use of technology to enhance what people do already, right? Mm-hmm. So by that, you create efficiency, you fix a pinpoint, you address a bottleneck, you, know, you reduce friction, or you create disruption. Right. So, so for us, we, we don't look out there for technology. Yeah, you can tell me about AI, blockchain, crypto. Yeah, 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 you can tell all that speak. But the question I ask you is that how are you using that to solve a problem? Because immediately you move to that side of, you move, you make that shift, you put on that lens, immediately you have a market, right? You then you have a business, you are, you're using technology as a utility. Nobody cares about 5G. Nobody cares about that. Right. I right. want to solve a problem. I'll give you an example. We invested in a company in Ghana called Ben Ben. Ben Ben was started by a gentleman called Emmanuel Noah. Emmanuel had figured out how blockchain technology works. But he realized that the land tenure system in Africa, in Ghana specifically, was a big problem. So he might build, map the land tenure system on the blockchain and then went to the Lands Commission and said, how about you use this infrastructure to create an immutable ledger so that when land transactions happen, they are in real time and they're immutable. Now, that solves a big problem Huge. because we've not been able to unlock the value of land in Africa because you can't get land title. Even when you get exactly. title, somebody else owns it, right? So here's a great opportunity to use technology to solve a critical problem because once you can create land title and you can create ownership of land, you can then unlock the value of land. And most developed economies, this is fundamental, to their development. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we invested mm-hmm. in Ben because we can see this as a major force to create value and to create wealth. And, and this is how you apply technology. Right. So these are the elements of what we look for when we invest in companies. When I talk to entrepreneurs, yes, I'm a tech guy. I understand all the tech speak, but tell me how you're using it to solve a problem. Right. And then I ask myself, is this problem Pan-African? Then immediately my you know, my lens goes up because I know, okay, it's 1.4 billion people or 1.2 billion people. Um, by the African Tech Free Trade Area, it's a $2 trillion market. Now that market is going to quadruple. So right there, there's a, it's a huge total addressable market, what we call TAM, right? So I can see how if I invested in Ben Ben, I can see how it could become a big Pan-African option because this problem is in all of Africa. It's not just exactly. in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Mhm 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 I love that. I'm going to look for them. So are they their early stage? Have they been adopted? Where where is that company? Yeah, yeah, they've developed this technology. They are in the final stages of this uh going live. Uh but obviously nice. this this means that you're creating a lot of uh, trouble for people that benefit from the inefficient <laughs> system so so they're going to fight back, right? So Sure. It's going to go live soon, but all the technology built. Right now it's just left to the government to reach. and 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 to be fair, um, ben Ben has had some of the most forward-thinking and yeah. forward-looking people in the Lands Commission to do this. Because if the Lands mm-hmm. Commission, the leaders there, and leadership there didn't embrace, you can't do it, right? right? And this is the credit that we have to give to the current administration's focus on digitization, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Back then, digitization became a big part of the leadership's agenda, permeated in through, through the government system. And so when you go and you present a digitization agenda, you get a hearing, as opposed to before where, because our government systems are hierarchical, right? So if the top mm-hmm. is not adopting technology, it's difficult to go to the stem and the roots and try and set a pre-technology. And so that digitization agenda that was championed by this government gives a lot of credit. And, and they've done a good job in creating the framework for now entrepreneurs who launch part on that and create solutions using digital technology. And that's how you create a digital economy because the economy of the future is going to be digital, whether you like it or not. You know, the knowledge economy is good. It's imagined. 
the countries that have been driven by knowledge workers and knowledge systems, we're either going to be part of it or we're going to be left behind. But I'm very confident that we are going to be part of it and we are most likely going to lead this uh, information age. Yeah, I can I can see that. And so you, you you touched on mindset. So I'm curious about what your mindset hack is. Right. What what do you practice? What did you imagine? What how do you hack your mindset? So I mean, I read a lot. So I, I think that part of this is I think I touched a bit on mindset, which is that in my mind, it's a lifelong learning exercise. Right. Um, I invest in companies to learn. Um, actually, I, I got this from Esther Dyson, who grandmothered me to investing. So Esther. Back as a founder, she's a super angel investor. Um, she sits on my board. Uh, many years ago, I started something called a Ghana New Ventures competition, and she liked it, and she backed it. We ended up remaining friends. Actually, she started ICANN, which is the Internet Corporation for Assignment. Well, she's the founding chair of ICANN. Um, but Esther is you know, what you call a super angel, and she's invested in you name it. And in my transition years, it's one of the people that said, what you're doing is angel investing. That's how I also started. You know, her story is much more interesting because she started angel investing in, in Russia and Eastern Europe. But I started in Africa. And again, it's contextual in the sense that you start from where you are and you build out. But, but the point is that I have always seen life as a life, uh, a learning journey. And every day I wake up with an instinct to learn. The second hack I've had is for my parents, my mom and my dad. My dad was a banker. My mom was a teacher. My parents always told me life is about people. So I never grew up as a young man thinking, how do I make money? After today, I don't, I don't wake up in a day saying, how can I make $10,000? How do I make $20,000? I always believed in, you know, building relationships and creating communities of people that are like-minded, that I can hang around with, that I can spend time with. And, and that has led to many opportunities, right? So lifelong learning as an ethos, so reading a lot, being curious, being open-minded, but also be cognizant of who I am and what I stand for. Of course, with me, that I don't compromise on certain things, but I compromise on a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to know when to compromise and when not to. But also Absolutely. to understand that life is really about people. Um, it's people that build companies. It's people that make things happen. And focus on building long-term relationships. I have friends for 30 years. I have friends. Actually, yesterday I went to a networking event and I ran into a friend. The last time we saw each other was the busy internet days, which about 20 years ago. And he walked up to me and said, hey, Eric, you remember me? I said, I think the face looks familiar. I said, well, you started Cyber Series as busy internet and I used to come and hang out. And you made a great change. And he started telling me all the stories. We, we ended up talking for like 30 minutes. And then he said, he's in transportation tech now. He's in transportation tech. So I, I got it from there. I, I was in tra- Wow. But I now use technology in what I do. And he was showing me a, a platform he's built where he can, he can monitor cars from his phone. His whole transport wow. is on his phone. And yesterday, I mean, I just felt, I came home and I slept well. I felt so gratified, right? That's yeah. drives me. I tell another story. Last year, um, I'd gone to Lusaka with one of my founders from Kenya. The company was expanding to Zambia. We got a customer there. And so we decided, why don't we launch an operations? Let's go see this customer. This customer was making us money. So I get on a plane. I go with the team. And then whenever I go to a country, I try to also do community development or ecosystem development. So I reached out to Bongo Hive, who are the sort of ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And said, Let's, you know, they said, why don't you come and do a talk about how to raise money? You know, talk to our community. I said, yeah, I'll do it. So we, so we had an evening. So I show up. You know, we had a great time. And this guy walks to me, Chisepo. Seppo has started a company called Zippos, and they were doing um, post payments. He said, Eric, you inspired me in 20, 2012. I started following you in 2012. You inspired me to be an entrepreneur. We've never spoken before. He said, the guy showed me things about myself that I didn't know existed online. <laughs> and then I started this company because of you. And he said, I don't know why you are here, but I'm about to start a next company and I want you to be part of it. And I'm an investor in a second company, which is in construction tech. Right. Nice. Nice. Again, a, a moment where I go to a country that, you know, I, I was in Lusaka many years ago. We set up actually an ISP in Lusaka many years ago, but I never met him. Mm-hmm. But he said, you inspired me from a distance and, and I think it's going to be a very successful founder. So these are the things. So the third part is the gratification that I get out of this, which is not financial. But yeah. you to get this kind of gratification, you have to practice something I call deferred gratification. Right. Mm-hmm. One of my mm-hmm. is that I believe that life is a marathon. It's not a sprint, right? But in that marathon, there are sprints, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Yes. So 
Exactly. So for every sprint, you have to look at it from a marathon mindset. So mm-hmm. I'm, I think that I'm in my second sprint, which is now I'm, a, I'm an investor. My first sprint, I was a, I was a founder. And I think being a founder has helped me be a better investor. Well, I'm still learning the act of investing and I'm still learning how to understand founders. But what I did before is a strong foundation for what I do now. And so if you see life as a, as a learning experience, then you build up on whatever you do, which is sort of the, the mindset that informs my investing as well. And I got this also from my parents, that everything that you do is an investment. You may not come from a wealthy family where you, you inherit a trust fund or whatever it is, but you have time. Time is the only thing that we all have the same amount of. And what you do with your time every day is an investment. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. read every day, you invest in reading, you invest in building your intellectual ability. And so that will have a reward. If you, whatever you spend your time doing, you got to see that's an investment. So I spend my time, a lot of my time, people ask me, Eric, you don't even have a second <laughs> to breathe. Because I budget every second. I plan every minute. Because that's the only work I have. When I started, I didn't, you know, my parents were, you know, very, I was lucky to have great parents who taught me great values and taught me the essential things about life, you know. But, you know, yeah. and I have to build up on those. Right. So those are kind of the key things that drive me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So our time is moving and I want to get so much in, but (laughs) two final kinds of questions. So one is, what are you excited about in coming off the heels of Angel for Africa? What are you excited about? What kind of technologies are you looking at? What are you excited about? And then who is that Eric that is not the investor or the entrepreneur? Where do you schedule in this time that's not about business? Right. So I'll take the first one. So I, I think that we spent our last 10 years figuring out how to understand and help an entrepreneur who walks through the door with an idea and paints as a future that we help them actualize. Right. So we call that a startup strategy. And I think we haven't figured it all out yet, but we have enough evidence of what to do when a founder comes to us. The next 10 years, potentially 20 years, we want to figure out how do we help these founders scale across Africa, i.e., how do you help somebody who has now got a business that is thriving in one country to go into multiple countries and run a Pan-Africa operation? So how do you build multinationals? It's going to be very challenging, and that is what is going to drive me and the firm and my colleagues the next 10, 20 years. If we can do that, we think that we will be leveraging some major tailwinds, and I'll lay them out for you. The first major tailwind is the Africa Intercontinental Free Trade Area, which is the free market that has been created in Africa. So the barriers for trade, the barriers that restrict, restrict continental trade are coming down. And so this is the right time to kind of leap in, right? So that's the first tailwind. The second tailwind is that this year, Africa became part of the G20, which I think was this was also grandmothered by India. And that was a smart move by the Indians because there is the Chinese ahead of them in Africa. So Modi is smart guy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to help Africa get into G20. So now we can have direct bilateral deals with all the 54 countries. So this is very forward thinking, right? So again, if you're building up an African business, it means that you can go into Africa and, and connect straight into the G20 economy, right? So that's a very strong tailwind. So you don't have to go to Europe. You know, you don't have to go to the U.S., right? You can go there by going through the G20. And I think the third, the third tailwind, which is quite probably the most powerful, is the emerging middle class that is consuming technology. You know, if you look at the charts, the Economy just published a report. I haven't read the entire report. But one of the things that economies have focused on is emerging middle class in Africa. And if you look at the chart, it's just been growing. And I think the last time I looked at it, there were probably 15 countries where this middle class that has disposable levels comparable to the worst. Going up, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that middle class is a very strong market and it's, it's a very strong consumer segment that tries to align with the lifestyle. Right. And online is now a lifestyle in Africa. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there's an opportunity for technology entrepreneurs to launch, to basically ride that tailwind. And I think that is the strongest tailwind that you see in Africa. And so because that is happening in multiple markets, we can actually drive a scale-up effect. So if you have a market in Ghana that consumes the technology, there's potentially that market in Nigeria. There's potentially that market in South Africa. There's potentially that market in Kenya, right? 
So having that ability to tap into that market is very important. But of course, how you execute is different because the way you do business in Kenya is different from Ghana. And that's where the nuance is. And so we as a firm think that because we are ex-founders and we know these markets, we are able to provide these founders with not just capital, but what we call capacity and community, which is the secret sauce of the scale-up model that we've built, right? That is just not, it's not enough to just write you a check and say, go figure it out because you don't know these markets. But because we know these markets, we can help you figure out how do you, for example, put together a go-to-market strategy to go into Nigeria when you're an e-commerce business. And that's by help by doing that, we're helping build your capacity, right? We help you build a team to do that, understand the business models, how things work differently. And then the second is the community, the third is the community. You know, we then help you launch in those markets. We can pick up the phone and call people and say, hey, you know, we think this business could work with you and could partner with you and that kind of stuff. And so that's really sort of the big thing that we hope to do. And hopefully that becomes the second part of our operating strategy in the firm. Sure. Personally, so I'm a father of two. Um, I have two beautiful daughters. I owe this since college. My youngest is about to go to college. I want to spend more time and help them become better versions of themselves, not of me. So that's important. Yeah. My mother just turned 82 days ago. Oh, nice. Did you do a big 80th birthday? Yeah, we did a big party. Yeah, I'm sure. Big milestone for me and for our family. Yeah. Beautiful to see the, the whole extended family on 26th. So my mom's birthday, 26th December. So okay. every Christmas we all get together, but this was the biggest one. We celebrated. Yeah, lovely. But also then, you know, whilst it's great that my mom is 80, it means that she's getting older, right? So I want to be able to exactly. spend more time with her siblings and more with family. That's a thing that are very important to me. I don't get to do it as much because of what I do, but you need to be able to create a balance. Right? Sure. Sure, sure. So are you a reader, a watcher, a listener? What are some of your favorite? I'm a reader. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I will, you know, when I was growing up, I, I read a lot. I don't read as much these days and I like writing. Okay. Actually, okay, right. um, I'm looking to start writing again in 2024. I'm good. Okay. So if you look at my, you know, last incarnation, I wrote a lot about what I did. You know, so I had a Harvard okay. blog that I wrote on. That blog platform got shut down by Harvard. So Harvard discontinued it. I'm going to open the blog on my personal website and I'm going to continue. Sure. I plan to write some more. I plan to read some more in 2024. Uh-huh. Um, I'm currently reading Cheikh uh, Diop's African version of civilization. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. so one of the things that I would like to do if I wasn't doing what I was doing now is to understand pre-colonial history. It's a mm-hmm. shame that we Africans don't know our pre-colonial history. Unfortunately, it's clear that somebody deliberately wanted us to only know our post-colonial history. But it was in Africa before the colonialists came. And I think they leave the much more... I mean, Africa is the leader of civilization, you know. I mean, we talk of the Egyptian pyramids. So there's a whole history that we don't know. So anyway, so I, I like to explore that, you know, because I, I really think that there's nothing new under the sun. And so if you understood history, it always repeats itself, right? Exactly. And I mm-hmm. think that as a technology, the more I could understand history, I could pre- probably have a better sense of what could happen in the future. So those are the things that I would love to do some more going forward. But yeah, and I like the outdoors, you know. I like hanging out with people, as I said. And um, I think that in 2024, just to kind of push it out, if you look at the market, we're in a downturn, right? So my life is in waves, right? So this 2023 was a very tough year for everyone. It was tough for us at the front. We're lucky that we were still alive. We still have the lights on. We still have our portfolio companies. We still have our team. A lot of people have lost, you know, a lot. So, but we think that 2024 is going to be harder, right? Because the market mm. go down and inflation, I mean, the macros and the micros are going to get a bit tougher. But what tough times do is that it makes tough people stick around, right? Yeah. I, the way I put it, it separates the boys from the men and the girls from the women. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so we really think that, but, but it's also good because the markets reorganize themselves and then we're going to have an upswing again. So we think yeah. that, you know, it's good. 2024 is going to be tough. We're going to brace ourselves some more. And then 2025, things will start kind of picking up again. But also the thing about downtime markets is that, um, yes, this currency devaluation means, you know, assets are cheaper, right? You can go to companies right. cheaper. And the guys that cut off the fat and build resilience uh, stick around, you know? So you got to look at, relook at your business model, relook at your lifestyle, 
you know, skilled on a lot of things, you know, <laughs> myself, I've got to try to cut all the fat, you know, for my lifestyle and try to stick with the muscle, right? And then yeah. build a lot of resilience. Yeah. So, so we look at, you know, getting into the new year and I, you know, I, I think it's going to be a tough year, but it's going to make, make us all tougher. And I sure. think it's going to be better for everyone when you go to tough times. Tough times are not the easiest to go through, but they're necessary. And so you have to prepare yourself, embrace yourself. We tell our founder, we tell ourselves that 2024 is going to be harder than 2023. And so we, and, and you need to learn the lessons in order to be able to get a better 2025. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sage advice. Sage advice. Eric, this has been so wonderful. And I could talk to you, obviously, for hours, but I know we've got to move on on our our holiday uh, festivities and things like that. But I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and kind of close out our 2023 and into 2024 series with part two of our conversation. So thank you again. And I wish you a very happy new year. Same to you as well. And I'll see you in 2024. I'll see you in a year. Indeed. 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 All right, Glocal Citizens, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, share, leave us a review. It helps others find great information like this on the internet. So until next time, bye for now.